Are you working on your author career, but struggling to get that first book published? Does the goal of being an author seem too lofty? Or thoughts of having multiple books and making a full-time living are as fantastical as living in Cinderella's castle? Welcome to Discovered Wordsmiths, a podcast where aspiring authors can be heard. Join Steven Schneider as he finds and talks to authors you may not know, but authors that have gotten their foot on the author career path. Hear what they've done to get there and where they want to go now. Settle back. It's time for a bit of inspiration and advice. Come listen to today's Discovered Wordsmith. Brought to you by Mind Architecture. Building worlds for your mind. So today on Discovered Wordsmith, I want to welcome the great Jim Beard, who is the better duo, better half of the duo of Flinch Publishing. That's what I hear at least, Jim. Okay. Wow. Okay. This is starting off on the wrong foot already. Now I can never talk to John again, my, oh, my no. partner, and, and my publishing partner. Wow. Okay. We'll just not tell John you're on here and then we'll- Okay. Uh, yeah. We'll this is just between you and me. Nobody else is going to hear this. Nobody at all. Wow. Wow. Yeah. He's, he's already supremely jealous of me. So now it's just going to be worse. Nice. <laughs> Jim, tell everybody a little bit about yourself to give an intro here. Okay. I am a, a writer, editor, and publisher of adventure fiction and pop culture nonfiction. And then I also, whenever I can, I will write licensed fiction too. I don't do as much of that as I would I would like to, but so I wear several hats and do a lot of different things. And I actually have two small press self-publishing firms. And we already mentioned the one. So that's Flinch Books with John Bruning of Cleveland, Ohio, who will never speak to me again. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I just broke the <laughs> band up. <laughs> and and then Becky Books, which is just me. And actually, you mentioned the license stuff. That was the first time I met you. It was actually years ago at Pioneer Village down mid-Ohio. Yeah. You had a little table like set up behind the mill yep. uh, in the middle of nowhere. It's like nobody is around you. Yeah, it and, was a card table. That, yes. <laughs> and I had found out that you wrote a story for one of the Star Wars comic books I had. And I had that brought it down to have you sign. Yeah, you're reminding me that we only see each other at Bigfoot shows. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which is funny. About it. It's just Bigfoot shows. That's kind of funny because that's not your main thing up until now. You, you're others. That's, that's interesting because I have been utterly fascinated and in love with cryptids all my life from when I was a little kid and and just want to be around that kind of stuff. But chose to do that because I do have a lot of like monster or supernatural related things. And I've that kicked it off for me. I've actually started doing some cryptid shows now and finding out that I do very well at them, that the people That's really good. seem to spark. When I bring Kolchak the Night Stalker, or I don't have, I can't get it anymore. I used to have an, an the X Files book, but unfortunately, I can't get copies of that. I, I've got anymore. that. Yeah, I got so, a copy from you. And I was just before we started recording here, I was just telling you that this last cryptid show that I was at, which I saw you there, 
surprise, surprise, <laughs> that I got the idea that I'm finally going to do a, an actual Bigfoot book. <laughs> that'd, that'd be great. I actually can hold that up when I'm at these shows and say, look, I have a Bigfoot book. <laughs> it's not just, right. a it's Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah, I saw you asking for stories in that, and I got excited because I love reading that stuff. I actually thought of replying one, but I'm like, nah, oh. I, I don't want to mix it with asking you to be on the podcast and applying to the <laughs> well, book. I, I don't want to feel done like, that. That's yeah, okay. um, but I don't think I was ready for it. Listen, I mean, honestly, if this first one does well, I will certainly want to do other another. In fact, I had to. I got more pitches than I had slots. Right. Broken. I had to actually turn down four people. Everybody turned in great pitches, which is an editor's dream. It's also a nightmare too, because you because then you have to weigh two really good ones and you gotta go. So who knows? Maybe a second volume, but it's I gotta get this first one out first. Good. I'll look forward to it because I also mentioned to you I'm reading the mummy anthology from several years ago. It's been sitting on my shelf for a couple years now. So it'll always be there for you. <laughs> The problem is when things are on my pile, other uh, things get added to it. It's kind of like a trash dump that the good stuff on the bottom yep. disappears because it's covered up. <laughs> my my to read pile is not that big, but I John, my my publishing partner, his he always talks about it just grows and grows. And every once in a while you take one off of it and go, oh. This has been on here for years. What really sucks is we're we're jumping around a little bit. We'll get back to some books here in a moment, but we were <laughs> oh, talking. Is that what about, we're talking about? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're just chatting for the night. Okay. <laughs> but we were talking about Pulp Fest coming up, and yeah. I've mentioned that in the past. I know I'm going to walk away with books, and my son's oh, got a list that he's looking for, and I'm like, yep. oh man. Hey, listen. I spend almost like everything I make, I just turn right around and it goes right back to the other tables. We just spread right. this money around. <laughs> There's really no money to be made at those places because everything you make, you just give to someone else who then gives it. And it you get back what you put in at times. <laughs> That's a really good point. And this goes into behind the scenes of publishing. John and I say this a lot that while we may not, be making a ton at Pulp Fest or maybe sometimes even breaking even because we have our hotel fee and we have our table fee and all of that. It's to us, it's the show of the year for what we do. And we look at it as rich, uh, a wealth of networking, uh, seeing what other people are doing almost, and then touching those roots of what we do again, the classic stuff that we see all through there. It's so valuable in many ways. It's not just right. to make money. We're hoping Absolutely. that we're going to make some new fans there and that will help down the road too. And then the problem comes in after you've seen the same people at a couple of these is I've got all your books now. <laughs> yeah. And that, you know what? And that's an ongoing concern, challenge, whatever you want to call it, that, that the audience is not growing. And yes, we do see, but the key to that is to always have something new, always right. have something new. So Flinch will have two new books this year that we didn't have last year. Nice. And then now for the very first time, Becky Books is going to be there. I decide because I actually took a few with me last year and I told John, I'll keep these under the table. You know, so I'm not going to take over the flinch table, but people were coming up and asking for them. So I put a few up there and they did so well that I actually broke down and bought another table. So oh. we're going to be both be Becky Books and Flinch Books there. And with the Becky Books, I've got 
I have several new books that I didn't have last year, but that is the key. If you're getting the same people, then you got to have something new, got to have something new. Right. So let's talk about a couple of those books. Okay. Uh, you mentioned <laughs> the Western and that's your newest one from Flinch. So yeah. tell us a little bit about that. And I know you do a lot of like short story anthologies in that. So yeah. if you got any others to bring up for people that are listening that, that would be interested in that, tell us a little okay. bit about them. Cool. So at the time of this recording, one week ago, John and I published Six Gun Legends and it's 10 rounds of Wild West action is the subtitle. This is our very first foray into Western fiction. This is was spearheaded by John. He's a, a big Western fan. Somewhat more recently that he's gotten into it. But he's, And he said to me, I really want to do a Western anthology. Now, what we do at Flinch is that we, we do usually once a year, we do one anthology and we do one like of our own novels. So we've been alternating. He puts out Midnight Guardian and I have Sergeant Janice, but we always do a, a fiction anthology. So this year it's the Western anthology. And I got to tell you, I'm proud of every book that we put out, but this one is just in incredible. The lineup of writers that we got in it. We got a couple of the, if you'll pardon the pun, big guns, of modern Western fiction, Terrence McCauley and Jeffrey J. Marriott, who, if you don't know their names, yeah, look, I don't look know them, them up and they're at the forefront of the modern writers who are doing Western fiction right now. We can't believe they said yes, but they seemed very excited to be part of it. And it's all brand new stories in this book. And there's a couple of us who had our, we're all professional writers in this book, but a couple of us have never written Westerns before. And That's I'm cool. one of them. Now, this is funny. John is almost one of them, but about what, about a month previous, about a month ago, another publisher, a friend of ours, Charles Milhouse, oh, it's Stormgate Press. He put out a Western anthology and John is in that. And it's so funny. It's just that he got that one published first. Or ours would have had John's very first. first Western. So it's technically the second Western. But Chris Ryan and me, we have our very first Western. Neither cool. one of us had ever written Westerns before, but had always wanted to. And this was our chance. So the theme of it is, it's not just Western stories. The theme of it is that every, all the characters in it, in, the, in their universes, their legend precedes them. They all have something about them that that are that's larger than life. So think the Lone Ranger. Okay. So the Lone, when I was a kid, the Lone Ranger was my entry point into westerns because I love superheroes. I wasn't so sure about westerns, but my dad was a big Lone Ranger fan when he was a kid. Mine too. And good. See how that happens. Yeah. He infused me with that same love of the character. So that's how Flinch works is one of us usually comes up with the basic idea and then the other one offers a way to tweak it. And and then we go back and forth. So John said, got to do a Western anthology. And I said, cool. How about if it's more instead of the common man in it, I said, all the characters have something about them that people know before they even walk into a town. They have a name for themselves. They have a gimmick anything like this. They have a legend. And he said, yes, let's do that. 
So and it doesn't necessarily have to be there. a gunfighter, right? It yeah. Could be so, a- so this book has gunfighters or assassins. It's not just heroes. There's some real shady characters in this, but again, they have some. They have a shtick. They have a name. They this, that, and the other thing. Some of them are almost superheroes. John has his character called the Six Gun Specter, and oh, he's yeah. kind of like a almost like a shadow, the shadow, but in the old west. Western superheroes are cool. <laughs> yeah, totally. So here's me thinking, oh, I'm going to do like a Lone Ranger thing. And then I don't know how it happened, but I did a, a husband and wife duo called Mr. and Mrs. Smith and Wesson. <laughs> and just had a ball with it. I imagine my story as a half, a black and white half hour episode of a classic Western, like the Rifleman or something like right. that. I set it up and imagined it in my head. And there are a couple that, they have a very odd relationship that the husband's a little henpecked, the the woman's very strong-willed, but they also have this great love story kind of going on too as they walk, go into town and get themselves into crazy misadventures. See, my first thought, and I've watched a lot of those Westerns with my father. He That's all he ever watched. We had the Western channel just so he could watch Westerns all the time. I love it. And my first thought actually was like, a maverick character, a card ace guy and some heist or he gets himself in trouble and it's a comedy thing. That was my first thought, which is weird because normally I'm an action guy, but we got, we got them. We got that type of character. In nice. This book. So all those wonderful types of Western characters, they're all represented here. And like I said, some are more sterling than others and some have way more shades of gray <laughs> than, than others. But they all have a name for themselves. The one somewhat exception to that, and I love this, is that Jeff Marriott. No, it's Terrence. Ooh, I, I, Terrence will be mad at me if you listen to this. Terrence McCauley has an ongoing set of characters in his novels that he is known for. He offered us a story of those characters when they were younger and he nice. i guess he had never done that before almost like an origin story so this is those characters before they became legends the way they are in his series of that's cool i'm hoping that once the his fans hear that that, that there's that character that we love so much except this is when he was younger I hope that they're going to say i need to have that because right. keep that completeness going in it Absolutely. And so my question for you particularly is, you mentioned your Sergeant Janus character, who I've read and loved, very Karnacki-like character. You You very easily could have put him into a Western in that time-ish frame and done something with him, supernatural. Well, he, he, thank you for that. He exists in what I call the late Edwardian period. He's actually in the late 1920s. Yeah, the funny thing is that there are TV shows on right now that are Westerns, but they take place in modern times. Right. That's a very fun idea. But what I wanted to do was I personally didn't want to have a recurring, my recurring character in it. I really wanted to do something brand new. And I'm hoping that people like my new characters enough that they may want more stories of them. And I hope that for all the characters in this book, because they're all brand new, except for Terrence's characters. 
the story's brand new, but the characters are previously existing. But I'm hoping that people love that so much that they go to these writers and say, man, I really want to see more stories with that character. Absolutely. And I've been involved with a couple anthologies with a whole bunch of writers where it was like a theme and everyone did their own thing. So I always, even if I have those at a table, I'm a middle grade writer. And I'm like, these are anthologies with many writers. I cannot guarantee all the stories are kid friendly, just yeah. warning you. So at some point I'll probably for people on my list or something, release my stories to them so yeah. they don't have to buy this book and rip out the stories that don't fit their <laughs> kids or something. It's just, it's that weird thing. I just don't want someone reading it and saying, oh my God, I didn't know that this one, because there's swearing, there's adult themes. There's yeah. one, one author who's wonderful, but everything is LGBT. And, yeah. and not that I have a problem with that with middle grade, but if you're not expecting it for a middle grade book. And you know what? A lot of people do that where they write, they have a character and they are in many different anthologies with that character. And then they eventually take, when they get enough of the stories, they take them all and then they republish them in one set. My buddy Charles Rutledge has his, his barbarian character, Karn. And he's been saying lately a lot on Facebook that he's, I now have, I think it's like 17 or 18 stories of this character. I think maybe I have to do a collection now. And we're all going, yeah, this is what you do. Come on. Come all. And you put them in. So it's like the complete Karn. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Tell everybody a little bit about Sergeant Janus. We've mentioned him, and he's one of your big characters. We've got a couple books by him. So, yeah. And right behind you, we were talking about your posters, <laughs> and you are talking about the cryptid stuff. So you're in that supernatural, paranormal, monster world. You've done yeah. X-Files and Kolchak. And Sergeant Janus is your own character that fits that. Give everybody a little bit about that. Sure. And you said it earlier when you mentioned Karnacki. Karnacki was created by William Hope Hodgson in the teens, 19s. And I, when I first read those nine adventures, there's only nine stories of them. Hodgson was killed during World War One before he could write any more. I absolutely fell in love with it. Now, I've always loved the idea of the occult detective. It's a subcategory of detectives. It's it, it's like Sherlock Holmes, but with ghosts and right. supernatural things. And I've always loved that idea. And I was truly inspired by not only that, but then Karnacki also appears in Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comics. Yes. So I think I actually just like Alan Moore told me about Karnacki. And then I said, I have to go and find the original stories. And then I read all that. And I said, I, it's, I just want this. I want this for myself. So Sergeant Janice grew out of that. He is a spirit breaker, but basically a ghost hunter who operates in the 1920s. And the twist is that all of his stories are epistolary. Yeah. Meaning, if, and it's okay if you don't know out there, if you don't know what that means, that every, the stories are told through letters, journals, other type of writings, all first person. And that's the twist here, is that in the first book, Sergeant Janice Spirit Breaker, we learn that the sergeant, he does not write up his own cases once they're done, like for his own files. He asks his clients to do that. And what we get is it's eight cases in this in the first book, and we get eight different points of view on the same guy. 
So some are men, some are women, some are people who are totally into what he does. And then there's some people, there's one guy in particular who was, no, this guy's a fake. And I can't believe I fell for this. By the end of the book, like I said, you learn how the sergeant operates, but you get it filtered through eight different people as right. they themselves go through this these crazy little adventures with him. And it's a direct line from like Sergeant Janus to Kolchak to X-Files. If you like those and you're a reader, Sergeant Janus fits right in with that. Yeah. What I love about the occult detective trope is that it can be adapted to many different things. So you said it yourself. So there's the classic stuff like Karnacki, which is just pure, unadulterated occult detective of the classic era. And then there are things like Kolchak. People don't realize it, but Carl Kolchak is an occult detective. Uh, he investigates supernatural things. He's doing it for a different reason that like he's not out in the world to to first and foremost get rid of the supernatural. He's actually writing stories for a newspaper. Right. But in that in the process of that, he gets rid of the supernatural menaces. Usually X-Files. Great example. Skulder and Mully. <laughs> Mulder and Scully. I uh, blah, blah, blah. I like Scalder and Mully. That that would be the good parody. <laughs> There's a parody of it out there somewhere. That, yeah, but, yeah. They are totally occult detectives. Here's another one that people don't realize. The Ghostbusters are occult detectives. Right. So it's really cool that what it's become over the years. I think the X-Files, the one thing I look at it now, and I wouldn't say they have to change it, but I really wonder what it would have been like if Scully would have been much more scientific and opposed to Mulder's belief and all his paranormal. He just would go the paranormal route and figure it out. Yeah. But she was supposed to be the science one, but we didn't really get science on that show, which wasn't bad. I just wonder what it might have been like yeah, with a little in, more. In the beginning, maybe, but I think... It's inevitable what happened, and I love it. By the end, they had almost switched places. Yes, absolutely. She, she got to the point where she was presented with more and more things that she could not deny or she could not question, and then he became very disillusioned you know, with everything and colder to all those different things. So that's really interesting the way those two characters yeah. end, ended up. Yeah. In the beginning and for a little while, she she really did resist all those and tried to offer explanations for things. But <laughs> I and guess I, when you're kidnapped by aliens and impregnated and whatever the hell else, everything else yeah. I don't think you can go, eh, it was swamp gas. <laughs> I, I did start to miss the monster of the week type thing, which they brought up some I more later. I totally agree. My wife and I watched it. We didn't watch till the very end. I think we watched up until the point where Duchovny left the show and the other guy came in and I can't think uh, of Robert Daniel. Patrick. Yeah, played Dan. From Cleveland, by the way. There you go. Wow, it produced both John Bruning and <laughs> that guy. But we said that after a while, too, that we looked more forward to Monster of the Week than what the, the mythology episode. Yeah. Because you know what? It was getting so thick that you had to, you couldn't miss a mythology episode or you'd yeah. have no idea what the you hell had was to take going notes. on. Yeah. Now, you know what? With Sergeant Janice, every time there's a new book or a story, 
I, I do it in a way that you don't have to have read the previous ones, although it would be nice if you did. No, but I do it in a way, hopefully, that you don't have to. But boy, oh boy, if you did, you're going to get this bigger, huge story. That's right. The TV show Supernatural took over as Monster of the Week for me for a while. It got convoluted, overarching five, six seasons worth of one storyline type thing. Too. It happens. Yeah. What are some of your favorite books to read? And you know what? When I was when I was a kid and into to college, I was really regimented with what I read. It was pretty much science fiction and fantasy, epic, high fantasy and science fiction. And it took a long while before I got to the point where I started to read some mysteries, maybe a little bit historical, maybe even a romance or two here and there. And over the years, I realized how much time I had lost. And there was so I have favorite authors now that I that I wish I had known sooner. One of my most favorite non science fiction and fantasy writers is Rex Stout. Uh, oh, the creator okay. of Nero Wolf. Uh, yeah. I'm an immense fan of the Nero Wolf books. They are some of the greatest mystery books ever written. I highly recommend them. And there's a lot of them, so it can take you a little little while to go through them. Classically, I'm a big Robert Heinlein fan. I'm a big Ray Bradbury fan. Um, there's a guy who I absolutely love, and unfortunately, he hardly does anything anymore. His name is James P. Blaylock. Oh, yeah. yeah, he wrote or writes or whatever you want to call it, what we would normally call urban fantasy. But it's some of the quirkiest, most interesting stuff. My favorite is one called The Last Coin, if somebody wants to seek that out. Other than that, there's a book that I absolutely love called The High House. And it's actually part of a, it's three books. And that's James Stoddard who writes those. It's, again, it's a fantasy world, but unlike anything really that's out there. It's basically set in a house that is so big that it contains many lands inside of the house. Wow. It's actually said that the house controls the workings of the universe. So there's clock towers and there's a guy that goes and winds the clocks regularly But if he doesn't, he says that time itself will run down and stop if he doesn't keep the clocks wound. There's so many different... I love these books to death. It's called the Evanmere series, N-M-E-R-E. They're by James Stoddard. There's three of them. There's He's got a couple of short stories floating around out there of the same universe, but highly recommend those books, as well as Rex Stout. And, and then James P. Blaylock, his, more of his earlier stuff. What he does now is he has like an, a sort of an occult detective character. And I'm not so fond of those as I am of his individual novels. So, I'll put some links in the show notes for the episode. Uh, be cool. You're actually the second person to mention the Nero Wolf stuff, like in the last two months. Oh, is uh, that right? And nobody had mentioned him before that. So that's you weird. Know- it's it's one of those series that you don't and people I'm not the only one who've said this lots of people say this you don't read them for the plots you read them for the interaction between the two characters it's Nero Wolf the detective and his assistant is Archie Goodwin and you really read it for Archie narrates the adventures and he's almost like this sort of stereotypical gumshoe type of character 
but in some ways, but in some ways he's not. He gets very frustrated with his boss because the whole thing with Nero Wolf is that he won't leave his home. So Archie is his eyes and ears and feet and hands going out. But Nero's a very corpulent (laughs) individual who likes to just sit home and he likes his food. He raises orchids up in the attic room of his home and he only works when he absolutely has to. And Archie just gets so frustrated with the guy. They're wonderful novels. Just again, I can't recommend them enough. Oh, I'm going to to pick up a copy because I've not read that. So I always love finding out things that I should be reading. (laughs) Not that there's enough of that already. (laughs) He wrote them from the, geez, I think the first one is actually in the late 30s. And he wrote them all the way up to the beginning of the 1970s. Wow. But he does an interesting thing is that they get to the point where they're almost timeless like he's, he, there's topical references every once in a while, but he begins to detach from actual time where you don't have to worry about, oh my God, these two guys would be how old? These stories have been going on for decades. You don't worry about that because they don't age at, like at all. Like the peanuts. Yeah. Yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, there are those classic type of characters that are, have been around for a while and they can't age. Okay. All right. So up in Toledo, do you have a bookstore you like to go visit? I hate to say that, but I don't, yeah, I don't go to bookstores anymore. It's a real shame. We do have a, we have one or two Barnes and Noble and every once in a blue moon, I'll go to them. We have a books a million, but it's way out on the other side of town. So I don't ever get out there. There is one independent bookstore in our area. It's in Perrysburg, which is to the south of Toledo called Gathering Volumes. And I don't get over there like I should, but it's actually been around for a while now. And it's an independent and God bless them that they can make an independent bookstore work these days when I'm sure Barnes and Noble are, have not are, have seen better days. But I tend to buy my books off of Amazon. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. That's what a lot of people are saying. Yeah. Um, But I like to try and me and my kids, whenever we used to go on vacation, we'd always find a bookstore and go to a bookstore. Yeah. And one of our favorite stories was actually in Toledo. We were looking around like what's close. And we found one that wasn't just books. It was an eclectic mix. It had DVDs and anime and collectibles and stuff. I'm like, let's go check it out. And it was the weirdest experience. I don't know, remember the name and I doubt it's still there. Okay. It was this old couple. They were like 80 years old in this rundown strip mall. It's this narrow little store and you walked in and it was like the store the, that the dad bought the Mogwai from with just stuff cluttered everywhere and things hanging <laughs> over you. Like he's moving things out of our way so we can get down the aisles and there's Boy. dust on stuff and there's no organization. And my kids just loved it. We were in there for two hours talking to the how, people. How long ago would that have been? Uh, like 2012-ish, give or take. 2014. I, I hate to say this, but I have no idea. Yeah. I don't think it was around for very long or I don't know. Wow. I'm stumped yeah. on that one. For, sure, for, it was Toledo. Yeah, it was Toledo. Oh, yeah. my, for, my guess is it really didn't exist. It was like one of those Stephen King stories where after we left, it just faded away and disappeared. Stephen, you know, Stephen, I hate to tell you this, but honestly, I think that's what it was. Because, <laughs> because uh, yeah, here's me thinking, no, you're nuts. 
there's nothing like that around here. <laughs> exactly. And my kids will still talk about it. We've been to so many bookstores and that's the one they remember the most. Wow. You know what? I'm also getting very jealous too, because I would have liked to. I, I, I have no idea what that yeah. was uh, a long time ago. And I'm talking 30, 35, 40 years ago, there used to be places like that in Toledo, but I can't think of anything more recently. Yeah. Like within so, 10, 10, 12 years. Or so. Okay. All right, Jim, I want to talk a little bit more about Flinch and publishing, but before we delve into that aspect of it, for everybody listening, you talked about your Western, you talked about Janus. If they said, why should I get your books and read them? I've got a stack over here. Why should I get yours and read them? What would you tell them? I guess I would have to say, because I think that maybe I'm doing things that other people aren't doing. I'm going to be the first one to admit that my books are not mainstream stuff. They're the kind of things that that I think are cool. I'm having a good time putting them out and maybe 10 to 12 people on the on earth <laughs> will get a kick out of them. But that's okay. I'd rather do something like that than necessarily writing a New York Times bestseller. I'd like the money. <laughs> if you want something off the beaten path, eclectic, or just kind of odd, or maybe one of those ideas that you go, oh, why didn't I think of that? Then look into to my my books. And then with my, and that's all my original, my own stuff, with my licensed stuff, have read licensed works before and you got mad because the writer went off the rails and it didn't feel like the movie, the TV show, the whatever that it was supposedly based on, then I would say give one of mine a try because what I do is I go out of my way to make sure that the characters sound like they're supposed to sound and that I stay within that concept because I know that's why people are there. They're re- they pick up a Kolchak book because they love Kolchak. They don't want to read something. I, I have my Green Hornet novel. They don't want some weird, silly, crazy right. thing. And believe me, some of the comic books more recently have done stuff like that. I'm, here's me going, this isn't anything like the TV show. Right. <laughs> then give my Green Hornet novel a try. And that's not to say that they're boring, because I do actually try to say something interesting in them. But you're going to see that the core concept is true. And that may, that means a very big deal to me. And that's very important. I've got the one sole book based on the TV show MacGyver. And it was so hard to track down in today's world. I didn't even know it existed until more recently. Yeah. And I was excited. I'm like, cool. Here's something from like 1985 MacGyver. I'm waiting for it. And I read it and I'm like, okay, I know what happened here. So my guess is that some agent had a book and knew MacGyver was big and told the author, if you change this to MacGyver, we could sell it. And they did. And it's nothing. There is no MacGyverisms. There's no science. It's And the character is so flat and boring. Yeah. And there's nothing exciting. And why, why disappoint people like that? They're picking it up because they like MacGyver. Here's a good example. Can you see this? Yes, yes. Land of the Giants. Yeah, this is the second of three Land of the Giants novels that Murray Leinster wrote. And 
while I'm enjoying it, it bears very little resemblance to my beloved TV show that I loved as a kid so much. Because that was back in a day when there wasn't the there wasn't the guidelines like today, where they basically just said, "Hey, will you write a Land of the Giants novel?" And they don't. It's like they just did it. They and they didn't pick it. The editor or the light, the property owners didn't pick them apart. And that's what this is. He just did whatever the hell he wanted to do in this novel. And it's not bad, but I'm going like, wow, that's a big stretch from the, like in the TV series, the spin drift is broken down like the entire two seasons or whatever. Here it's flying all around and then they land and they recharge the batteries and they're flying again. And there's a, there's an entire character in the crew. The passengers, that's not even in the series, the TV series at all. Her name is Marjorie. And here's me going, who the hell's Marjorie? (laughs) My stuff's better than that. (laughs) That's good. Yeah, and I like that Star Wars story. It was one of them. When I found out which one you, it was yours, I'm like, that was Jim's? I'm like, that was one of my favorites (laughs) out of that whole series. And I've read some of the X-Files stories, not all of them. uh, And I thought they hit it right on and nailed it. And Sergeant Janus is your own character. But I I think, and I don't understand why short stories aren't more popular than they really are sometimes because people are like, oh, I don't read, but here's a great short story, a great character. It's a beloved property. I hear you. It's weird. When I started writing, oh, as a reader, I I did not prefer short stories. I preferred novels. As a writer, I have found that I prefer writing short stories to novels. You have to use it's a, you use a different muscle when you're writing a short story as opposed to a novel. And I can see why some people don't feel that short stories like matter. And I feel that's that same way in comic books when you get one of the like the bigger special like annuals or one of the other things you get a bunch of stories in it and you can tell that they're all just pretty much filler they don't seem to matter with the character and i think that's the perception with with some readers but there's a lot of readers who really appreciate the art of the short story i have learned as a reader to appreciate the art of the short story and i got to tell you who did that for me is pretty much as ray bradbury because the, he, has, makes sense. He, he has a few novels, but honestly, the guy was a master of the short story. Yes. So he was the king of, of short stories. Yeah. But I get it. When you have fantasy novels these days that are like phone books, people will look at a short story and go, I don't, I need to have a, a novel this big. Yeah. I will say about Bradbury, his novels aren't necessarily the easiest read. They're definitely their own little style yeah. quite often. Yeah, that that that's that is true for the most part. I prefer like I The Martian Chronicles is not a novel, but it but the stories are all linked. And you can right. almost call it one big novel. Right. The Sergeant Janus books are like that, where the, it looks like it's individual stories, but the trick is when you start reading them, you realize that they're linked and that they form this overarching story. I learned that from the master, Ray Bradbury. One of my earlier projects that's backburnered right now that I want to revive is kind of what you were saying with Janus. It's short stories, but trying to bring out these characters 
in a lot of action sequences. That's for kids. Yeah. The goal was something boys would want to read. This is only six pages and it's pure action. That, But then I'm, I'm trying to get a whole story out. It's a back burner project because it was more than I could handle at the time. Uh, so, bring it, Bring it to the front and turn up the heat. Because no, my other stuff I'm working on is I'm very excited about. So that's what I'm. <laughs> okay. so, so there's a good fa- segue into for Flinch, what you guys are publishing. And now you don't publish like a million other authors. It's your ideas, your stuff. You may do anthologies, but you're not like getting novels from 10 different op- authors every year. Right. That's how, not how do where you guys, we're at. Yeah. How do you guys decide what you want to do with your limited time? It's, it's, it, so far, it hasn't been so bad. Sometimes it's we actually have more ideas than we can do. We're a two-man operation. We both have full-time jobs. We publish literally one to two books a year. And that is so that we can focus on making this one book the very best thing it can possibly be. We have set out to have some of the best uh, writers, the best stories, the best editing And this is hugely important to us, some of the best covers. All those things are so important to us. And if we did 10 books a year, we would not be something we get sacrificed somewhere. We are very happy. We just published our 13th book. I think we've been going for eight years now, if I'm not mistaken. And we only just published that Six Gun Legends is our 13th book. And so right now it's anthologies and then basically our two vanity, our vanity characters. It's the home of Sergeant Janice and John's The Midnight Guardian. I don't foresee that changing in the future. We have been approached by some writers to say, would you be interested in my novel? And what we're at the at a point where we just want to do our own things. And that's, I don't see anything wrong with that. If we do a full novel of somebody else, it's still probably going to be our our character in one way or another. We have a book, an anthology called Quest for the Space Gods, which is the, uh, the Chronicles of Conrad von Honig. We would very much like to have a full novel done of the Conrad von Honig character. So I can, I can foresee something like that, but writers can still approach us because we'll want to expand our stable, if you will. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to make you sound like horses out there, but I don't know what else to call it. Um, And we have, people have come up to us at Pulp Fest or where else and said, boy, I'd really like to write for you guys. And number one, that's the hugest compliment anybody could pay us. We must be doing something right if somebody comes up and says, wow, I want to be published by you guys. So like right. I said, that's where we're at right now. I don't really foresee that changing. We really love coming up with anthology ideas. We just, and so many of them we've come up with at Pulp Fest. And in fact, this year, in just a couple of weeks at Pulp Fest, on our mission, on our agenda, because we consider that a three or four day flinch meeting is what that show really is. Because <laughs> we just talk about what we're going to do. We will most likely talk about and figure out what our next anthology is going to be for next year. Yeah, shows and stuff like that, when you have someone sitting next to you, is a good brainstorming session. Yeah. 
we have a car ride because I drive to Cleveland and then he then we take his car from Cleveland to Pittsburgh. We have a car ride and we have to sit next to each other for three or four days. So we get some flinch business done. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And you also had a book, Airship 27, The Airship Hunters, if I remember right. Wasn't oh, that yeah, you? that was published by Meteor House. Okay. You know, yeah, it's a funny little thing because Airship 27 is who I was first published through. And when Airship, when Airship Hunters was announced at Pulp Fest one year through Meteor House, <laughs> Ron, the head of Airship 27, I knew this was going to happen. He comes to me and he's like, what? Like, he goes, you're publishing a novel with Airship in the title and you didn't bring it to us? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's written with Dwayne Spurlock, who is in Six Gun Legends. He's also in the zombie book. The mummy book. Mummy book, mummy book, yes. Yeah, which is called Restless, yes. Yeah, Dwayne's one of my most favorite writers to work with. He He and I wrote the novel called Airship Hunters, which is actually inspired by the real world great airship mystery of 1897. Yeah, I love that story. That I think that was probably the first thing I got from you guys. That is one of my proudest achievements. That book. It was it became exactly what I wanted it to be and more. And I just it's one of my most favorite things I've ever done. Thinking from the publisher aspect, what are some things that have been difficult or things you've learned that you've had to figure out and do differently <clears throat> as opposed to just an author writing one book? One thing I've learned is that you can have so many levels of proofing and editing (laughs) and you still get typos. It's maddening how many levels we put it through both of us. And we put it through like the work the in word, Microsoft word, we put it through editor. We put it through Google docs and it's finding all these things. And we're like, but then we go back and, Oh, and then wait, we put it back through every writer gets their last chance to go over it and they still find more. That's maddening. But what I have to say is John and I believe that we still come out to have some of the best edited books out there. It's never going to be perfect. I'm laughing. You wouldn't believe how many typos is in this thing. Three different times it says Dan said, and it's supposed to be Steve said. <laughs> Three different times. So it's so that's definitely one thing I learned is not to beat ourselves over the head about that, to do the very best we can do, but and it's going to happen. Stuff is just going to get through. And it happens to the big guys and it happens to the little guys. <laughs> I've always been of the mind, though. I don't understand the people that say, oh, this book sucked. I found one missing apostrophe and a comma in the wrong place, <laughs> one star. And I'm like, hold on. Did you buy this book so you can find grammar errors to complain about? Or did you buy it to enjoy the story? Yeah. Because if the comma missing and the apostrophe in the wrong spot or something, if that drew you out of the story so much, then the author really wasn't making a good story. Yeah. But if you're writing a great story, I could care less about the occasional duplicated word or something. I, I want right. to get the story. I don't understand people that get so I mean, nitpicky. It's literally on every page, it's going to take you out of. Yeah. And believe me, there are books like that. I just had one not too long ago that I could not believe it. Again, a major publisher. And I got to parts where you can tell it was 
the it was supposed to be taken out. It was like a note. Oh. It was either the writer's note or the editor's note, and it's still in there. And it's a sentence. So it's, oh my God, John and I have never had that before. The other thing is that I have learned that it's a team effort. You are, when you cannot do everything yourself, you are dependent upon other team members. And sometimes you, as excited or antsy as you are to get this book out into the world, sometimes you do have to wait because somebody is working on their part of it. I've also learned how to work with the people who do the more technical stuff because I can't do that. I cannot format I'm not tech set. I'm lucky I know how to work in Word. I cannot create a PDF file for the interiors of the print edition. I cannot format. I cannot do logos. Now, I can art direct because I have an art background and I can say I want this here and I want that there and all of that, but I cannot do those technical things. The key is to find good people who can Yes, absolutely. And bring them into the onto the team and then learn about what they do so that you're making their job easier. And then you get a smoother process to maybe, yes, get to that end result quicker because you've eliminated these problems along the way. And this is controversial. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, you can't do that. But in today's world, you've got the electronic books and then you've got books that are print on demand. So it's not like they're buying 10,000 and storing in a warehouse until they sell. Yeah. So you, it's not hard to go fix a few things and re-upload new manuscripts. Yeah. And the people that buy it from that point on have no idea that there used to be a mistake there. Yeah. But for some reason, people are like, oh, you can't do that. You can't alter it. It's not chiseled in stone. It, it And it's my file. If I want to upload the corrected file to Amazon or Kobo or something, I can. I've never felt that at all. And we've done that. Here, I'll admit it. We put out Six Gun Legends and Jeffrey Marriott comes to me. He's like, I'm so excited, everything. But you spelled my name wrong in the, not in the book itself, but in the Amazon listing. Oh. And he said, so I cannot put it on my Amazon author page because it's J-E-F. E-R-Y instead of R-E-Y. And I am I was just like mortified. This is a big time writer. And he was really cool about it. So I had to go back to KDP and I had to change it in there. And we had to wait however long for it. To, Three days it a week. Really you know what? Stuff happens. Yeah. We're well, all human. We can try to do yeah. the best we can possibly do, but sometimes stuff happens. It, it happens. And the it, cool thing is that you can correct those things. Exactly. Yeah. Today's world is different. And you brought up print on demand. And I want to say to anybody who's thinking this, there is no shame for on print on demand. It, I, I've encountered shows that will not accept writers to have a table there if they have print on demand books. And it's, I'm sorry, my print-on-demand books are probably better looking and better edited than some of the non-print-on-demand. So, like, where that stigma came from. It's old school thinking. It really is. It's like, here's me going, like, everybody I know does print-on-demand. Who the hell is going to pay for $10,000 print run, 10,000 book print run, and have it sitting somewhere? Like, nobody does that stuff anymore. 
it used 10, 12 years ago, every show, every whatever was, oh, you're not traditionally published. We don't want you. And now it's changing because there's way more authors going to these shows that have print on demand and they're independent. And even Dean Koontz skipped out and went to Amazon as opposed to, and I know I talked to J.D. Barker, who is hybrid. He's traditionally published and he writes with James Patterson, but he has some independent publish on demand stuff. So that's the the way to go. That's the way to go. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. The technology is all out there. And if a guy like me can self-publish, anybody can (laughs) self-publish. It's so freaking... It's so freaking easy right now with the way, with all the way, all this technology is. Yeah, it is. And, and you mentioned over and over on Facebook because all, in all these groups, people are like, how do I find a publisher? And I just, I literally, I should have it in custom cut and paste self publish. I just say self publish. And I go on to the next thread. Like somebody's saying the same thing, self publish. Like why well, would you want to self publish? So real Two things there. You okay. mentioned the name wrong linking in Amazon. I got on my Goodreads profile page and there was a picture book that popped up saying it was mine. That I'm like, that's not mine. There's a new author lady that has the same publishing name that I do. And I'm like, are you oh. kidding me? Couldn't she have looked before she did this? Yeah, there's a couple that happens on Goodreads when I put in my name. There'll be There's a couple of books by other people with my name. But it's interesting because they're absolutely nothing even remotely like the stuff that I do. So no one's ever going to think that, that that's me. But thank God, there's a, there's a very well-known musician with my name. He's like a keyboard player and he's been around for a million. And he actually has jimbeard.com. Or, but again, it's no one's ever going to mistake me for me. And you mentioned about the self-publishing thing. We're talking some author stuff. And again, you're more published than I am. There's tons of authors more published than I am. I totally get that. I've got a little bit of experience under me. So I feel I can offer some thoughts and advice on a few things. But I have noticed that so many authors come to the things up at the Cuyahoga Library, which is a wonderful library system for authors. And they come to these roundtables. They come to the conference and that And they're like, last month I decided I want to be a writer and I've been working on an outline. So my question is, how do I publish to Amazon? And should I use, and it's finish your damn book first. This is not something to worry about right now. And people get so worried about the publishing part. It's, oh my God, if you're that focused on it, what, how good is your book going to be? Get that book finished. That's the publishing stuff really becomes easy once you have a book. Yeah. Preach it, brother. Yeah. (laughs) You couldn't be more. And yeah, I have seen it over and over again. John has seen it over and over again. It's absolutely true. And it's almost like a, a pandemic, if I can use that word. People are so, they're jumping to the end. Yeah. And worrying about all that stuff when they don't even have the work yet. It's one of two things if I'm ever asked, do you have any advice for new writers or young writers or whatever? And after many years, I've come up with two things, and that's one of them, which is finish something. And believe me, I'm the worst procrastinator. (laughs) I cannot believe how many writers that I see and they go, Yeah, I have four unfinished short stories and I have that unfinished novel and it's finish one of them. Just get to the part where you write the end. 
have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Finish it. It does not have to be pretty. You go back and you polish it. But don't keep leaving all of these unfinished works littered behind you. (laughs) And, And maybe it is because you're focused on, I need to find an agent. I need to find a publisher. I have to get an an author photo taken. I need to have my author Facebook page. Blah, 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 blah. Or this this other genre is really big. I'm going to do a book in there. Wait, this other thing's really popular. I want to do a book there. And I get it. Yeah. I I have not been diagnosed. I'm probably AD. (laughs) I am a horrible procrastinator. But you know what? I have finished things. (laughs) It can be done. The struggle is real, but it can be done. Right. Believe me, you've got to do that. You are absolutely correct in everything you just said, Stephen. When you're worried about all of that other stuff, something's really wrong. It is. Uh, There will be that time when you want to start thinking about the cover or the map that goes in your fantasy novel or whatever, but finish the damn thing first. That's so important. Have that be everything. It's the alpha and the omega. And it definitely is different. I've got a couple things done and under my belt and publishing out and working on other things. The new things click so much better. The, I was so trying to, oh my God, I got to learn Hero's Journey and uh, the Save the Cat beat sheet and fit everything in and cram this story so it hits all those points. Yeah. And what was the problem? And I'm listening to this podcast and I've got 300 books, craft books Ooh. that I'm reading. And, and I realized what the problem was. I had no reference for any of it that yeah. until yeah. I start writing and I had a couple books and a couple short stories and all of that done and, and ready to go that the learning, the craft made sense. Yeah. I needed that reference for it to make sense to actually get better. That was the important part. I'm not a big proponent for how to write books and how to write seminars and things like that. I greatly respect the people who write those books and do those seminars and the people who read those books and go to those seminars. It's not for me. I learned by doing. Absolutely. Yeah. I fell down and I broke my nose a couple of times or whatever, but I just, I'm not that big on taking all that time to, to listen to someone else telling me how to write when writing is such an individual thing. Yes, there are nuggets of wisdom out there. I get that, especially the people who say just write. So those, <laughs> yes. I like those people. Just write. That's what you got to do. But when you're spending that much time on on the preamble or whatever, I got to tell you, just write again. It doesn't have to be pretty. Write something, get it done, then go back and then make it better. Right, But just focus on getting to writing those words, the end, and make that your mission. (laughs) Yeah, totally agree with you. And that's something I've had to learn myself over the last couple of years writing is my writing isn't getting better except by writing and writing the next thing and more. And the more I've written, the more everything makes sense. And it's people are like, oh, I haven't had the uh, muse and and I'm like, Every big name writer says, it's my job. I have to sit down and write. And when you do that, 
you actually can get things done. And people that are like, oh, it's just, I had this other idea or it's, or I was reading this book or I had this conference and it's, but did you learn anything that you're applying? You got, I just totally realized I've learned way more by writing and writing more than I have anywhere else. And it makes a lot more sense now. I tell you, if, you know, someone out there, if you want to read something that might help you is read, read novels or short stories or whatever, I think you're going to learn more from that than reading a book about how to write a novel and a short story. I think read your favorite writers, figure out and then dissect it, figure out what, okay, get to the end of whatever and go, now, why did I like that so much? And and take it apart. Now, that doesn't mean you want to ape those people, but you might actually learn more from that rather right. than read a Stephen King book, not necessarily Stephen King's book on how on to writing. Write. Yeah. Although I have a lot of friends who love that book. And so I've got to be careful with what I'm saying. <laughs> and to add on to that, what I've said also is don't just read and then go back and try and write something. Have stuff you've written because then your brain can refer to that as yeah. you're learning and the structure. And I read all the time and I'm like, oh, I see what he's doing there and how he wrote this emotion or the way he's describing this. And that makes sense for something I was struggling with. And I went, can go back and now mimic that and yeah. learn. And that's the way to do it effectively. There's a, there's a second part to this. And I, if you don't mind, I want to say what my second piece of advice is. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, I'm sorry. No, because it is a continuation of what we're just saying here. So you have, you got to the end, you have this thing, but you're not sure what you have. So you want somebody to read it. You want another human being to read it. Here is my advice, especially for those first time writers, those younger writers, the the newbies uh, among us. Do not have your mother read it. And you can take your mother and fill in also your father, your sister, your brother, your aunt, your very best, your BFF. Don't do that because those people are going to F you up. A hundred percent agree. You have to, this is called tough love. Please. They are not going to tell you what you need to know. They are, God love them. They're not going to lie to you. Hopefully they're not going to lie to you. Maybe they are. Maybe they're going to purposefully lie to you, which is not a good thing either. But they're not going to be, they're not going to give you the honesty that you need. You need to almost find a stranger (laughs) who will read something because your mother, what's going to happen is your mother's going to tell you that you're the greatest writer since Hemingway, Tolstoy, I don't know, whoever the (laughs) hell else, near Rex Stout. Yes. (laughs) And I got it. And then what's going to happen is you're going to go out and you're going to publish something that is utter crap and you're going to embarrass yourself. This sounds harsh, but somebody has to say it. You can't do that. You have to publish when you're ready to be published. You have to learn and you have to get better. 
And those people who are very close to you, who love you dearly, are not really going to be the ones to help you do that. Unless your dad's like an English professor and he's a very hard, cold guy and it doesn't matter if you're his daughter or son and he's going to lay it on the line, then okay. But that's really what you need. You need somebody who's going to give you the tough love and they're going to say, yes. That wasn't bad, but it's kind of clunky, or I didn't really care for that. And you know what? It's not going to be easy to hear. What you want to hear is your mom saying, oh, my God, sweetie, that is the greatest. <laughs> oh, I love that. I can't wait to tell my, my. I, I, don't, I was going to say bridge club, but I don't think anybody plays bridge anymore. <laughs> See how old I am? But, but seriously, folks, you got to find somebody who will give you honesty when, Agreed. when you have them read your stuff. And I have yet to see anybody who gives it to their sister who they're so close to because all they're going to do is they're going to lavish you with praise. And yeah. then you know what? And then we're going to have that many more horrible, crappy things being self-published <laughs> on Amazon because it, this happens in the music industry and I see it all the time. All these shows on TV with these singers, you can tell that more than half of them are up there because somebody in their family told them how good they are instead of telling them, you really need to work on your singing. Should you take a few lessons or whatever? And it's the same thing with writing. It's the exact same thing with writing. Agreed. Yeah. Um, and I, it's going to be, it might even be a challenge to find somebody who can offer you, like, I can't do it because I'm at a point where I shouldn't really be writing or reading unpublished stuff because I don't ever want someone to come back around and say, you stole my idea. It's not a right. good idea. So it could be a challenge, but mom might not be the best person right. to go to. <laughs> I've told a few people that have read my stuff. I said, look, if you want to give me some feedback, that's great. But if you truly love me, you'll give me constructive criticism and tell me what you don't like. Because Perfect. if you think you're being nice and don't want to hurt my feelings, it's going to be 10 times worse if I publish it and yeah. it's a load of crap. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get, you start getting those one star reviews and they say, Reads like a book that somebody gave their mom to read instead of listening yes. to somebody who actually had talent. The first thing I did write, which is hidden somewhere, I don't know if I'm going to bring it back out at some point, but my mother got mad at me for it because it was basically a kind of X-Men superhero origin story. And she was a foster child. So, you know, the parent, the foster parents had to die to push her into that world. Oh. And they did. They got killed and she got mad at me. And oh. why did you have to kill the parents? And on and on, because it would have sucked if I didn't. <laughs> hey, at least she didn't say, oh, sweetie, it's so good. <laughs> she was being honest with you. Yeah, yeah. She, she was trying to point out that there would be other people out there in the world who might not be that happy when those parents die. <laughs> right. Once it got back from the editor and there was 20 pages of red line notes and I literally pulled out 35,000 words, it was time to put that away for a while and Take what I learned and move on. Smart guy. <laughs> smart guy. Yeah. All right, Jim. It's been a wonderful chat and Thanks. I can't wait to see you in a couple weeks. Yeah, cool. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. All have right. Your, I, have your money ready. <laughs> yeah, it will do. And my son's definitely coming down there. I don't know what all he's getting, but he's he can't stop talking about it. I'm like, really? How are you suddenly this excited about Pulp Fest? You've never read Pulp Fiction in your life. It just 
suddenly he's got that bug and he took all my Conan stuff and he's been reading it. But and here's the thing, Stephen, is the the, uh, the goal is that he sees things that he might not have seen before and get interested in them. That's the problem with that show is that the audience <laughs> is aging and kind of aging out. Yeah. And what we need is we need some younger people who go, wow, this is, I've never seen any of this stuff before. It's all new to me. And look at that. Oh, wow. That's yeah. cool. Look at that. If they can get past the unfortunate uh, in the classic pulps, they can get past the unfortunate racism, sexism, and yeah. some of that stuff and understand that was the times and exactly. who the pulps were being written for the common man then I think there's a lot of valuable stuff in there. And that's what they'll see is that the guys that are doing it today, like John and me and several other of our compatriots are changing that we're retaining the excitement of pulp, but we're bringing it into the 21st century yes. in those ways that were unfortunate before. <laughs> oh yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm excited to go to the show with him because it haven't been things like this we've done together for a couple years. So it's nice to have this again. It's just, I look at him, I shake my head. I'm like, dude, I've had Pulp Fiction on my shelves. I've had Conan and you've never touched any of it your whole life. And I've shown it to you. Oh dad. But now it's suddenly Conan. Hey, hey dad, get off his back. Let him go, man. It sounds good <laughs> <Yeah>. to me. <laughs> Yeah, of course. He did that with other stuff. When he got into Alpha Flight, he took all my Alpha Flight comics. So. I would draw the line at that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Especially all right, my John Byrne Alpha Flight original issues. He ain't touching those. <laughs> yeah, he's got his own set now. He's been okay, scouring. <laughs> all right. It's been great talking to you, man. I Same appreciate here. you getting on. We'll have to get you on the Geekery podcast so John can't show you up on that right <laughs> good because i can't have that no we wouldn't want that all right we'll see you in a couple weeks thank you all right. take care thanks so much hi if you enjoyed this episode of discovered wordsmiths please support the author go to their website go to amazon look them up get the book and if you click on the link that i have in the show notes you'll also help support the podcast so i can keep the hosting and all the software i use and uh, keep it running for to help more authors. When I am recording this, we've got over 100 episodes, lots of authors. Go to the website, discoveredwordsmiths.com. Check it out. There's a lot of great authors, probably in some genre that you love. See what they have. Check out their books. That's what the point of the podcast is for. So people can discover new authors, find some new books they love, support the authors so they can continue writing. So please support them. And if you do like the podcast, if you've been thinking of podcasting or you're a writer, I've got some links also at the website. Click on those if you're interested in any of the software or services that I talk about. Everything that I have there is something I use, so I've got an affiliate link. Again, it's a little bit, if everyone clicked on those, if they were going to get it anyway, it helps keep the podcast going. So let's all help each other out, discover more authors to read. Thank you for listening to Discovered Wordsmiths. Come back next week and listen to another author discuss the road they've traveled and maybe sometime in the near future, it might be you.